This is On Your Radar, a podcast series with the staff and physicians at Rosecrans. I'm John Williams from WGN Radio. And in this podcast titled, How Do We Help Our Kids?, we'll focus on the mental health challenge of helping young people cope. T.D. Hostica is the Director of Residential Services for Rosecrans Jackson Centers. And Tisha Hopp is here, who is a therapist at Aspen Counseling, which is a division of Rosecrans. We are recording this conversation via Zoom, but I got a good look at the two of you. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Hello, T.D., and hello, Hello, Tisha. Thank you. Hi. Good afternoon. So that's something that the two of you are familiar with. This is the nuts and bolts of your day-to-day jobs, is that correct? Yes, definitely. It is. Uh, Previously, in in podcasts in this series, uh, we covered some of the challenges uh, for kids and how mental health issues can overlap with substance use and addiction. But today I want to talk a little bit more about how the kids who are struggling, what types of coping skills can work for them, why resilience is impossible, and how do they build up that muscle. Um, T.D., let's start with you. Generally, what are you seeing out there among young people, Um, either the overlapping of substance abuse, mental health disorders, or just the baseline problem that the pandemic has presented. Uh, how are kids doing, at least the ones that you see? Uh, struggling at best. Um, I think that the pandemic did not help by any means. Uh, isolation, uh, away from friends, uh, away from observers that could see if things were going wrong in their lives. Um, our kids are dealing with trauma at every at every turn, whether it be substance use and mental health, which go hand in hand a lot of times. Um, sometimes they will use, they'll have mental health and they'll use their substances in which to coping skills. And here at uh, Rosecrans Jackson Centers um, in Sioux City, we, we work on getting rid of that need for the um, chemicals in developing other coping mechanisms, other coping skills um, in our therapeutic practices. Mm. And Tisha, just uh, respond generally to me. What are you seeing? What's walking in the door? Well, I have to say, not only am I a clinical therapist at Aspen, I'm also full-time a school social worker, and I work in elementary school. And even our young kids, kindergarten through fifth grade into middle school and high school, what I'm seeing in elementary is a lot of anxiety, a lot of Um, inability to manage emotions um, and just needing the to be taught how to manage those emotions that we do have some control over that we can do that with the help of adults and um, panic attacks is another thing like that is just in my private practice I have a lot of young um, teenagers preteens coming in experiencing a lot of panic attacks in school and I agree with everything TD has said as well. Um, you know, our pandemic did, certainly did not help at all in this. I've um, <clears throat> talked to some people who work in schools in the Chicago area, and they talk about the impulsivity, how kids yeah. are saying or blurting out things that are inappropriate or acting in ways that they would not have pre-pandemic or that would not have been appropriate maybe for anybody at that age, but because they've lost a couple of years of socialization or because they're residually traumatized, yes. you just see some strange behaviors. Is oh, that your yeah. experience? 
Yes, absolutely. And um, during the pandemic, there we've had um, several age gaps where the kids have lost um, schooling. And so we're getting kindergartners in who um, didn't get to go to preschool. Right. And some of those are now first grade who are just now learning really how to be a student in school. And even, you know, the academics are have been delayed as well. Um, The impulsivity that you talk about is um, our first year back in school full time after the pandemic. We had yeah, we had a lot of kindergartners really struggling, staying in class and having behaviors as a student should. What about you, TD, along those lines? I I look at it, too. I I work with kids that are a little bit older. And and so the socialization that they lost, um, teenage socialization is tough anyway. But then now be behind closed doors, be connected to an Xbox or connected to the Internet or social networking or, or that kind of stuff. That's not real good social networking. But then you take the social play out of it, um, athletics being canceled, um, those things where they can learn some things and, and learn uh, teamwork and all those things. Those are gone. And then as Tisha talked about the impulsivity, I had a, a kid the other day who said, I have no desire to do this thing that I'm doing. And then two minutes later, he's doing it. I mean, just something that he just reported. I'm, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do anything wrong. I, I'm, I'm good. I, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And then two minutes later, he's doing it because he cannot control emotional regularization and, and he can't control impulsivity. Do you imagine that the examples you two are citing um, are specific to those individuals that is they would have had trouble controlling their emotions or behaving appropriately anyway, and the current circumstances have only exacerbated that? Um, or is it taking kids who never would have shown any of these sorts of stressors and turning them into people who are unable to control, who are going down a, you know an inappropriate path? You know what I mean? I wonder if some people were about to tip and this just put them over the edge. Maybe it's impossible to answer this question. Um, or is it taking a perfectly normal, fully functioning, healthy young person and suddenly we find that they're not so functional either. Do you know what I mean? I wonder if some people were predisposed, or or all of us essentially predisposed under the current circumstances. What do you think of that, Tisha? I think certainly, you know, anxiety is something that, you know, even somebody who isn't predisposed, I think after the pandemic, after the pandemic, we've um, all have experienced more anxiety than we probably did before, you know, just we're being social beings. And a lot of us who are even extroverts um, have most likely had some anxiety going out in, into public after, after the pandemic or during it. Right. And, um, you know, I have kids in my practice and kids in my school who are typically developing kids who have, are now experiencing a lot more anxiety than they would have, I think, that if we had a pandemic. I'm thinking of adults that I know who I would not have predicted 
were so upset by the pandemic. Uh, you may know people like that. You go, wow, I never would have thought that Bob would be the one who still won't come to card night because he's afraid or has changed significantly. And I suppose if we see that in adults, maybe we see that in teenagers too. Kids who you thought had it going on, got good grades, were on the sports team or whatever, and suddenly they don't seem themselves, that it might have been hard to predict. Would you have guessed that this student would have been more resilient than that one? My experience with the adults I know is not at all would I have been a good predictor of that. Do you know what I mean, TD? That it's, 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 so it's, if I'm, if I'm asking you to assume that we would know some people are more vulnerable to this, it would be very difficult to know who those people are. I would agree. Um, but I, I, as I was listening to you, I was, I'm also thinking that I think that today's generation has been able to, because of how they interact, how they you know occupy their time, was able to adapt more to being locked in the house than if you would have said this happened 25 years ago with only three channels on the TV, no Xbox, you're watching Pong. Um, you yeah. know, doing those kind of things, no Netflix, no, none of that kind of stuff. So I wonder if this group was, this generation was able to get through life a little different. Then, then you take the people that, that need to be around people. Like you talked about those adults or the, or those other, those, what we would have thought were well-adjusted kids. And now we are limiting them and they can't, they're going to be anxious. They're going to get depressed we're going to see a lot of depression mm-hmm. and we're going to maybe see some experimentation with things to relieve those stressors. And, and then that's going to, to cause a lot of dysfunction, a lot of things, problems, not only for them, but in the household. So if there's alcohol in the household, if there's marijuana in the household, if they can get marijuana, if they can get other drugs, somebody's pills, um, I guess it runs a gamut from there, self-harm. Um, suicide ideation. Um, have you all seen that? Is does does it progress that way? It it does. I we've seen um, a lot of self harm. Um, I have a I have a adolescent crisis unit here, um, and usually it's suicide ideation, suicide attempts, overdoses, that kind of thing. And we were just in a in a rounds this week, and we're. The, one of one of our nurses said we're seeing a little bit less of the actual overdose overdose or for lack of better words failed attempt at suicide we're seeing more behaviors and we're seeing more self-harm associated with those behaviors as well that that, that aren't meaning for suicide but they're just self-harm and and self-harming activities cutting and 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 finding anything to to cut and and dig at yourself and pick scabs all those kind of things that you see and so it's it's interesting how it's progressed we may not be seeing and i'm glad that we're not but we may not be seeing the actual suicide attempts but we're seeing a lot of self-harm a lot of cutting a lot of injurious activities do people explain what they're thinking or why they're doing that I think some of us who don't travel in your circles don't know this business think that a person who attempts or dies by suicide has reached a point where they can't live anymore and they've decided to end their life. Um, but where does self-harm come into that? That do, Is there an explanation for that? 
Well, uh, with self-harm, I mean, the, the idea is to eliminate the intrusive thoughts so that those negative messages that you're giving yourself, I'm not good enough. I'm, you know, I'm not worthy. I can't do it. I'm no good. Um, people don't want me in this world. They're not going to miss me. Um, those intrusive thoughts can be pretty powerful and that self-harm to them relieves that those intrusive thoughts like alcohol might i mean it's a it's a it's a kind of mm-hmm. uh distraction or it's it somehow takes your brain away from that other feeling yeah. you've changed your focus yeah yeah um okay are there any other um trauma or red flags that we might just think about before we go to the next part of this conversation, which is coping mechanisms and things like that. What else do you see in the behavior of the young people that you all work with? Um, Anything else that uh, I'm missing? Because, you know, one thing that some of your colleagues also talk about is that people tend to retreat, too, rather than behaving spontaneously and inappropriately or self-harm. There's also the absence of communication or, or interaction. That well, strikes me as being more insidious, more difficult to see and and even yeah. deal with. I think I think one of the biggest complaints I'm I hear from parents are social media that their kids are always on their phone or they're always on their devices and they don't know how to get them off. And that to me is withdrawing from you know the world around you. That is um, you know maybe frustrating for you or something you can't handle um you know and i think that's kids also during the pandemic were able to talk to their friends on social media um but i think it's a way to withdraw from whatever's happening at home or school well social devices are double-edged swords aren't they yeah they They are. are we hear a lot about um sexual trauma uh, sexual assault trauma, sexual trauma that's going on. And, and some of that is um, exasperated, obviously, by social media, um, by uh, um, whether it's trafficking or catfishing or, or whatever it might be. But it's it, it leads to things that some of these kids are not even prepared for. And before you know it, now, we're, now that's another thing that we're dealing with as we're working with them and trying to plan for them. Yeah. I wonder if it sets unrealistic expectations, too, about – um, sex um, that th- the person is going to be more cooperative or that it's going to be more exciting or it's going to go a certain way and it doesn't it just it it does not in any way prepare somebody for what a normal healthy relationship would be like how it would advance and how it would eventually culminate in something but uh, I would imagine depending on what you're looking at on your phone or your computer it doesn't set a stable foundation for what a healthy human interaction would be like. Plus when we're, we're dealing with, we're dealing with adolescents. And so the, the thought process, the, <clears throat> how you would frame sex to a young, you know, it kind of makes you scratch your head. And then to try to explain to them or try to get, you know, um, them to wrap their arms around what's safe and what's not safe and to make that decision and not, or not make that decision. Um, is, is very important, you know, and, and, and it's something that it, it gets younger all the time. You just shake your head, you know, you just can't, can't fathom. 
Well, talk to me about how I would talk to the kids about that. Like, I wonder what the setting is, what the timing is, what the opening question is. I think a lot of us remember where mom or dad walked into the bedroom, closed the door, sits on the edge of the bed, and says, we want to talk about something. Oi, you know. You're like, oh, no. Oh, no. This, but, right. but, then, but then if you say, okay, well, I'll bring it up more spontaneously, like when we're driving down the road or when we're having dinner, there goes dinner, you know, and this is uh, suddenly a really uncomfortable drive. So, I don't know, give me some thoughts or ideas along <clears throat> these lines. I, I taught at the community college level for 12 years, and I taught intro to psych. And I developed developmental psych. And I, I, I asked my students, um, who do you want to teach your kids about sex? Do you want it taught in the schools? Or do you want to do it at the dinner room, at the dining room table? And to a T, they raise their hand and they, they don't want the schools teaching it. They want the, you know, but I said, okay, then are you ready to do it? And none of them, none of them wanted to have that talk. So you know, Tisha and I were talking, how do we have those conversations? Um, you can't be a helicopter parent. You can't, I, I, I'm not saying you can or can't do it. I'm, I'm just, I'm suggesting don't be a helicopter parent. I'm suggesting don't react or overreact because it's just as much about what you say as how you say it. And um, give them that ability to communicate with you openly and try not to overreact and judge and, and hype it up. It's going to be one of those conversations that you need to have. And don't think that it's going to not happen at some point in time because you need to have it. I'm sorry. Uh, you need to have it. <clears throat> that is you need to have the conversation. Expect that they probably are having sex that you don't know about or are drinking and you are not aware or they're smoking weed with their friends and you you didn't realize that you suspected it. Um and is if the impulse is you can't do that or you shouldn't do that, are you telling me to um, moderate my negative pushback, TD? I have a 10 and 11-year-old boy, boys, excuse me, 10 and 11-year-old boys, and, and I'll ask them, hey, do you want to smoke some weed with me? Just rhetorical, <laughs> please. <laughs> and um, they'll say, no, Dad. I'll say, no, but it's really cool. You will be so cool if you do this. And we'll have this dialogue over and over. Dad, no, it's not cool. I'm not going to do this. And we'll drive down the road and, well, do you want to try this with me? You want to have a drink? Just a sip. It's okay. And and so I think it's how you say it. And you have those conversations. And then you, you know, you talk about the peer pressure in a, not a way that your peers are going to pressure you. But, hey, it's super cool if you do it. You will be really cool if you do it. That's how we do it in our house. Not saying it's going to work for everybody, but I, I think that we cannot ignore the conversation. I don't think that we have to assume that they're doing it, but I think that we can't ignore the conversation. What are you thinking, Tisha? Oh, I totally agree. I think it starts when they're young, opening up dialogues of communication. Um, kids want to know information, but they'll take in as much as developmentally they can handle. I remember when, you know, when my kids were young and they had a question about sex and if they were five or, or six or eight or 10, you know, it was all developmental and it was just enough for them to, to get what they need, you know, and it was, it was according to what they could handle. Um, I think 
the conversations if we've missed when they're young and they're now teenagers. I think TD was spot on. Don't be judgmental. Listen, be an active listener. Um, control your emotions in it because it's really hard as a parent. Um, you want to scream inside, you want to cry inside, but that's not something that we need to do with our kids. Like um, when they're trying to tell you they're hurting, they're in pain, or they're experiencing these, you know, really hard things. Um, communication is really important in how the parents handle it. Um, helicopter parent, you know, I, I think TD hit that on the spot too, as well. Um, we don't want to do for our kids. We want them to build resiliency. We want them to learn how to manage these emotions and these tough situations on their own, but with our support, not doing for them. So I, if you can start when they're young, do it now. <laughs> right. And if you, right. Oh, for a way back machine. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then as they do start to reveal things, don't overreact. I wonder then what is – maybe just to – now I'm going to ask them what are the consequences of that or why you're doing that or how are you feeling about that. Be a little mm-hmm. – um, play the part of the counselor. Do I take them to a counselor? Do you recommend that they talk to another adult if you feel like you're not making progress? I wonder what the progress is for a parent in that situation. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Counseling is is always important for our our kids, our teenagers, our young ones as well. I I see in my practice, um, five years old and up. Um, I see as a school social worker, I see kids, um, you know, that are just experiencing some really tough situations, and they can come see me. And parents typically give permission for that. Um, I think professional help is really important for a child to have somebody else to talk to that they don't feel like they're going to disappoint. Um, I think it's really important for parents to have that conversation with, well, you know, maybe it's that time that we get somebody for you to be able to share those things Uh, with. Talk about that impulse to not disappoint. Impulse is the wrong word, but what do you mean by that? I don't want to disappoint. Well, sure. If you're telling, you know, your parent that you're really struggling with anxiety and maybe your grades aren't as as what your parent you think your parents expect, um, that's a that's a really tough thing for a lot of my um, kids who are more of a perfectionist, for example, um, have to have all A's, have to not get in trouble in school. And that's a lot of pressure and have friends and do the sports and stuff. And if I'm telling my, my explaining that I'm failing math or I've failed to test, well, that's a really tough thing for a student who has all that pressure built up inside. I, does that make sense? Uh, sure, it does. But I think it's, uh, in, it's instructive, too, because you would imagine that teenagers are naturally a little self-centered, and mm-hmm. their first concern is, maybe isn't what mom and dad think, but how do I feel? What do my peers think? What does that girl think? What does the coach think? I don't know. Uh, yeah. But the idea that they would actually be internalizing the fact that they're letting their parents down, I think, mm-hmm. really informs the parent on how to approach this, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I've had several clients who 
um, pre- they assume that their parents would be disappointed if they had a lower grade than an A. And so they strive and strive and strive really hard to keep that up. And they wear themselves out where they just get to the point where they want to give up. Um, and to have that conversation with parents, that there's that disappointment, I'm not good enough. And that internalization that you talked about is pretty prevalent with a lot of a lot of kids. Is that true for the older kids too, TD? It is. I, I think that what's important, and just to, to piggyback off what she says, in, in your original question, take them to, you know, see somebody that's a professional. It is, I want parents to hear, it is not a, a nick on their parenting mm-hmm. if they take their child to see a professional. Because nowhere was it on a parenting resume that you had to be a perfect parent. And so if I have to take my my boys, or if I have to, you know, look at some therapy um, for my kids, I'm going to do that. And it's not a nick on me. I'm providing for my kids. So what are some skills? I mean, maybe we're going to work on this as a family. So I've, you know, we had a healthy dialogue and we're we're talking about it, but now what are are we going to do at home? Any ideas, TD? Um, You know, like, here's what I'm expecting you to say. Uh, breathing exercises, um, a better diet, and, and I'm not mocking this. Uh, exercise, um, healthy routines, which are so obvious, you think that suggesting them, you might get some negative blowback. It's like, well, duh, Dad, but uh, you know what? I'm depressed or I'm pissed off. So, what have you got? But, but I don't know. Talk to me. Maybe we start there. I I know this might sound like you know old fashioned, but I I think it starts at the dinner table. Now, I, I can't, because I, of my drive, be there for breakfast in the morning, but my wife is there with, with the boys for breakfast in the morning for going to school, and they communicate and talk to them. I, I think communication is huge. Get off the devices, do that kind of stuff. Do things as a family, um, and then, you can, then you'll be more aware of when things are, they seem off kilter. Um, yeah, sure, you can do exercise. Sure, you can do those breathing exercises and all those kind of things, but I'm just thinking if you're more in tuned in the beginning and not do fast food, not not eat on the fly, not eat in front of the TV, do those things, and you can have those conversations, I think that's huge. Where do you start, Tisha? What are you thinking? Well, I definitely agree with TD and starting at home with dinner. I think that's doing playing games, playing board games. A lot of kids don't even know what a board game is these days or how to how to play and i think that's really important um i i teach a lot of mindfulness and at my elementary school i teach every single student in the whole school throughout the year mindfulness and i go into the classrooms um we're we're learning about how the brain works right now and one of the programs that i'm using is called mind up and it's actually for parents as well. So there are lots of programs um, that they can get online and look up. But these kids right now that I'm teaching is kindergarten through second grade. And they're learning about how their 
uh, emotions are working in their brain and how to regulate by doing those types of exercises, you know, and in school when I'm frustrated because I can't get a math problem, you know, I can, I can think about something, you know, that's a little distracting to, to be able to come back to do that math problem again or take some breathing exercises. That um, mindfulness, teach, excuse me, yeah, you're describing yeah. this little mental exercise. Yeah. I've reached a roadblock or some frustration point in my life. Now I'm going to do what? I'm going to imagine or think something? Is that what you're suggesting? Oh, it's just a little distraction activity so I can think of something that might bring me joy or some happiness um, for that moment and then get back into uh, what I was doing instead of stealing that. a vape somewhere, uh, <laughs> right. right? I mean, literally, like, let's go yeah. ahead and put my mind on hold for a minute, and then yeah. clear, and then come back. Is, is and the- come back. I mean, I'm really teaching these kids that our brain has to be connected. That's our big word in school right now: is get get reconnected in our brain. Because if emotionally we are dysregulated, um, our thinking brain cannot work. We cannot make good decisions. We can't. Um, solve an argument or a conflict. Um, so it's really important to, to get reconnected. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be upset and frustrated. But our behavior, you know, we need we need to regulate that and make better decisions. So, can I just um, bring up one other concern that I think some parents have, uh, and yeah. it's so obvious that we need to communicate, listen to the kids. I think, though, that in the moment, you do not want to be the inquisitor. You don't want to be the person that is going to be the source of a negative conversation. And so when you say, hey, how are things going? And they say, fine. You say, okay, well, I'm here for you. Uh, You don't maybe trust that answer fully, but you don't want to be the source of more pain for them by needling them, or needling is the wrong word, but, you know, by, by probing and so I can see where it's not that the parents are intentionally trying to avoid it, but they also are worried that they're going to exacerbate it, or they're going to be, here's mom and dad, and now they're watching me, and they're judging me, and they're talking to me about it, and you don't want to be that. You, you want to be an oasis for them, or at least a help to them. And that doesn't seem very helpful at the time that we're all getting upset or defensive in the course of this conversation. I just offer that as sort of the backdrop for which I think well-intended parents don't behave the way we all know we should because it's, it's not so easily done. No, it's, it's not. And one of the things that I try to do when I'm working with, with parents or with kids and so is when it comes to that point, um, and I make a suggestion like, let, let's let's agree that whatever is said here, I'm not going to get upset with you. And so if I think that Johnny is not doing well and using his coping skills, I might say, Johnny, can you pull out your, your one of my, one of my um, techniques is I, I get a three by five card. And on one side of the card, I want them to write 10 things that they like to do outside. And on the other side of the card, I want them to write 20 things that they like to do inside. And so, that's their coping skills. I mean, it might be read a book, it might be listen to music, it might be draw, you know, it might be go outside and, and throw a frisbee. It might be all of these different things. And if you ask why twenty and why ten, twenty because we have a lot, a lot more winter than we do, or a lot more cold weather in Minnesota than we do warm weather. It seems like so. I want them to have a whole host of things to choose. 
but now my rule is with that client if i'm the if i'm the parent and i say can you get out your notebook your note card and choose something that you want to use to get past this point you can't be mad at me i'm not mad at you i'm just helping you and then we if we have this agreement which is hard but if we have this agreement then we move forward and now i can say to johnny johnny <clears throat> you're struggling i see you're struggling can you get out your note card choose something then what we've also done is we've let them choose what their coping mechanism is we've let them make that choice we're not mm-hmm. dictating everything we're just asking them to utilize it mm-hmm. something that they've already created themselves i like that because i would i would i would come up with the solution they might not yeah. like it here you can say it's it's your list <laughs> you know these right. are things you've right. you've identified i yeah. would also like to piggyback and say you know I'm a big mindfulness person, but it's not for everybody. And I agree with TD, you choose what works for you. I definitely have a few clients that mindfulness, you can tell, would not be their first choice. So it's it's about what is going to work for you. And I have older, you know, adult kids, but when my boys were younger, um, when they were disconnected or dysregulated, angry about something, their their choice was to go down and punch the punching bag 50 times, 100 times before we would, you know, get reconnected and talk about what was happening, you know. And I would say to them, I, we can't have this conversation until you go calm down, you know, and I say this to parents as well. Um, find help your child find these things that help them get regulated again and then have that conversation don't have it while they're angry and dysregulate because they're not connected they're, it's not going to get solved tisha do i ask my kid hey i wonder if i i'll even include them in that mm-hmm. what's going to work for you should we get a punching bag uh do you need uh I don't, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but mm-hmm. you tell me what you think will help you get more centered before you're, you're yourself again. Yeah, um, help them build that toolbox full of all those things that they like to do. I have a client who plays soccer, so his thing is to go outside and kick the soccer ball to get calm before he has you know, a conversation with his parents or can come back in and do what he was doing. So, absolutely. Maybe it's... Um, Slap shots on the ice for those of you in Minnesota up there. Is that a TD? Yeah. Uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, there's two other things that I want the two of you to talk to us about today. Um, what responsibility do the parents have themselves? Uh, it's come up with some of your colleagues in some of our previous podcasts that it's not just enough to talk the talk. Um, this requires physical presence, effort. Um, and even role modeling by the parents. And I, I wonder if they appreciate what they're getting themselves into when they've decided that they're going to help their kid. Because it's not just, uh, okay, I told you that, now I'm going to close the door and you go be better now. Um, I, I would imagine it's more work maybe than some of us realize at first blush. TD, is that true? I think it is. I, I think it's easy to give in hard to stay on track because the harder that staying on track might be hard because it's hard on you. I've worked all week. Um, you're grounded from your iPad. You're grounded from Xbox, whatever, because you had these behaviors and you're asking me 15 times, can I do this? And you're bugging a crud out of me. And it's easier for me if I said, yeah, go ahead. 
Cause then now you're not bugging me. I get to relax and do whatever I want to do. So I, I hear what you're saying when you say that, you know, we have to be present in their life. I was talking to Tisha before we came on air and the one thing that I'll have, I'll have kids or, or even adults come back to me and say, you know, because of my behaviors, because of what I've done, they don't trust me anymore. And, and I can't do anything without them wanting to know where I'm going, when I'm doing, when I'm coming back, who I'm going to be with, all these kinds of things. And I don't feel trust. And I'll say, I'll say, dude, it's like you don't have any legs. For 10 years, you're, you're a 25-year-old man or you're, or, or you're an 18-year-old kid. And for eight years, you've, you've been you know, smoking, sneaking out, weed, all these kind of things. And now you're not. And you expect me just to trust you. And you've only been not doing something for six weeks. I said, dude, you're not going to have any legs. And in when I see that your actions are matching your words, then I'll go and talk to I'll, I'll, I'll be right. I'll, I got your back. And I'll say, hey, got to give them their legs back or some of their legs back. They don't have to run yet, but give them some of their legs back. Start to trust because look at all the work that they're doing. It's a it's a constant battle. What's easy, what's not easy. Um, you go too far and don't trust and you're helicoptering, that is going to drive them away and they're going to learn how to hide things from you so that they can continue whatever their behaviors are. Or they're going to go and do their behaviors because you're going to believe that they're doing it. You're not believing that they're not doing them. Yeah. So they're going to do their behaviors anyway. Might as well do it. Well, and if it's drugs and alcohol, let's just say marijuana, which is legal for people of an age, and uh, at least it is in Illinois, and uh, alcohol, um, I think adults can relate to how difficult it is to stop drinking or drink less. And 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 uh, adults have been smoking tobacco, smoking marijuana, and drinking more than they were before. They still p- may well be to lay the law down on your kid that that isn't going to be tolerated, uh, imagine how difficult it would be for you if in the midst of all of your anxiety somebody told you to curtail okay. that behavior. Um, so I guess we need to come up with some strategies for that sort of thing too, yeah, be it substance abuse counseling, uh, in treatment, I guess, if it's absolutely necessary. But I suppose you have to sort of um, set realistic expectations about how quickly the behavior is going to turn around, whatever the behavior is. That's that's more a concern maybe for for you, uh, TD, than it is for Tisha, since you send probably are working with younger people. You're not seeing, I don't suppose, tobacco, marijuana, alcohol abuse in the set that you deal with, do you, Tisha? Um, in my practice, I was talking to TD about this. I do have young adults. I do have teenagers who their choice is weed. Um, and they use it multiple times a day. Um, that's the extent of... Really? I shouldn't yeah. be surprised by that. But I think, um, here again, I'm a, I'm an old man, right? I'm 63. Um, so... If I get stressed or if I'm – I know when I drink and I know when I drink too much. I know what time I do and I know under what circumstances. And it's always, air quotes here, appropriate. It's not at work. you know. It's not while I'm driving or when I'm going to drive. Uh, it's interesting to me that people would smoke weed all day long as a coping mechanism. Um, but I guess that's that's what happens, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And what scares me about that is – and I'm 
not young anymore either. The the weed today versus the weed 20 years ago is much different. It's more potent. Uh, it's bigger, better, longer lasting. Um, and I'm afraid for our kids because the natural tendency for kids, adolescents is to do the best, the biggest, the strongest, and the last longest and all that kind of stuff. And so they'll move from weed to something else or they'll mix something in with their weed. And then that's concerning. Yeah. So I guess that idea of, well, we used to smoke pot too, or we do now, um, is a different conversation, isn't it? Just not only the age of the kid and the fungibility of their brains, but the fact that it's different than the marijuana maybe somebody was using in the 1970s or the 19-whenevers. One last thing then, uh, and that is about developing strong values or esteem. Uh, Doesn't a lot of this stem from self-worth or esteem issues? And can you just give me some guideposts for helping kids be better citizens or or feel better about themselves? You know what I mean? I, I presume that's part of this conversation, too. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's never too late to talk about your values, to talk about, uh, you know, in for parents to be the best role models that they can be, but to also... Um, know that there's room for mistakes with parents and to admit to admit to what their mistakes are. Uh, I think one of the things that really helped with my youngest son is that um, if I was having a bad day, I was able to come home and he would ask me. We had this ritual. He would ask me, "How is your How is your day?" And he could always tell if I didn't have such a good day, and I would talk about it in a sense of, you know, what I wanted him to Mm -hmm. see me as a human, you know, Um, I think these are really good things as you can start when they're young. Um, Like I said, it's never, it's never too late to start those conversations and reciprocate that, you know, he was always really good to come to me and say, how was your day? I was good to say, okay, and how was yours? And having that conversation and, and being real in that. But uh, you've just made me think about a kind of role modeling that I never imagined, and that is if I've had a bad day, I really don't want to talk to you about a kid, or maybe I don't want to talk to my spouse about it either, Mm -hmm. but that I do demonstrates to them, because boy, I'm going to be on the receiving, I want to be on the receiving end of that information when you're having a bad day, Mm -hmm. so we need to kind of get in that routine, even when I least want to do it. I think it's important for kids to see their parents as being real people real human beings that do make mistakes. They make mistakes in their jobs. They make mistakes in the real world. It's okay. We don't, we aren't perfect, you know, but we're going to support each other in that. That's a good way to just teach your child how to communicate, which goes into all relationships. Right. I think it's important to show that we're vulnerable um, and and not be afraid to admit it. It's not macho. I say uh, my boys will tease me if they see me cry. Uh, dude, you, it's okay to cry, and I'll make you cry in a second if you need me to because I, <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> but um, I, I think that it's important um, to show that vulnerability. These kids, uh, they're, they're resilient. You, you mentioned it earlier in the start of this. Uh, kids are resilient. It, it's amazing. They can walk through hot coals, needles, everything, and and they can come out if they have the support system. 
they can come out shiny and a penny on the, on the backside. And um, I just, I think that that is, is, is a valuable thing that they have that sometimes we don't. I go back to my teaching of, of, of development. Um, we are, and it gets a little bit less, but as parents, we are it. We are the bomb from, you know, one years old to their eight or nine or 10 years old. And then we are the stupidest people in the world from about 11 or 12 until we're about 27, until they're about 27. And then all of a sudden we're smart again. And so we have to figure out in that 11 to 27 range, how we're going to effectively communicate and show them how to be kids and grow up and be parents and be good people. That's pretty good. Well, the title of this podcast is How Do We Help Our Kids? The Mental Health Challenge. And I think this has really been helpful to me, I'm I'm sure to our listeners. Any last thing, Tisha, you want to make sure that we hear anything we didn't get to that you hoped you were going to get a chance to express? Yeah, I just had a thought about, um, you know, seeking professional help for your kids. I think it's important, too, that uh, parents understand, first and foremost, that what's happening in in the sessions are confidential and to allow them to have that, um, not to pressure them when they leave that session with their clinician of what did you what did you talk about? Uh, Mm -hmm. Did you talk about me? Did you talk about, you know, to let them have that as their own. The other thing is when a lot of times I like to, you know, talk to this child about inviting their parent in when they're having a tough situation with their parents, like the communication needs to improve. Um, I set the stage for it. I let parents know that when you leave, they're not, nobody's in trouble. What if it can't be nurturing and loving afterwards, then the conversation that happened in here, don't have it outside of here, have it, keep it in here. So we can keep that loving, nurturing, open, honest, safe space, right? And it really seems to help. I I had a client who had a lot of things he wanted to tell his dad. His dad came in, the conversation was a very healthy one. Dad was willing to listen. He listened to everything his son had said, and they both followed through with what they needed after the session, and they've been doing very well since. So I think it's that follow-through as well. Was the dad surprised to hear some of the things the son said? I think I think some of it, but I think he really knew, um, and he was just very uh, empathetic and compassionate and loving um, during the session, and that was just extremely helpful for that relationship with his son. And either too bad or how good, but either way, that it took a third party to make that happen. I mean, here's yeah. the son and dad. And Let that's me okay. Yeah. 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 And that's okay. Last thought from TD? I think that if parents are wondering how to communicate or how to have a conversation, um, there are conversation starters every day on the TV set. It's unfortunate sometimes because sometimes the TV makes you grow up a lot quicker. If you just watch some of the commercials and see some of the things or hear some of the things, your boys will turn to you, your kids will turn to you. What did they mean by that? Or why are they doing that? Or is this? And 
I think that there's plenty of conversation starters there and not be afraid to have that conversation because if those kids are asking you what what why did they do that or what do they mean by that or what's going on gives you that opening. Well, this has uh, been helpful to me and I know our listeners. T.D. Hostica is the Director of Residential Services for Rosecrans's Jackson Centers and Tisha Hopp is a therapist at Aspen Counseling, which is a division of Rosecrans. Both of you, thank you for your time and thoughts today. Thank, thank you. you for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. This is On Your Radar, a podcast series produced by WGN Radio and the doctors and clinical staff at Rosecrans. With over 60 locations throughout Chicagoland, Northern and Central Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, help is just a click or call away. Click on rosecrans.org or call 866-330-8729 for more guidance and information. Rosecrans, life's waiting.